Welcome to the Dance Centre podcast. I am your host, Claire French, and I'm joining you from the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, also known as Vancouver, Canada. I'll be talking to dancers, choreographers and other members of the dance world here on the West Coast to find out more about their creative work and practices and to discuss what it means to us to be dance professionals today. Thanks for joining us. Lee Soufei is a performance maker, educator and writer who has spent the last 40 years exploring the human body as a site of intersecting habits and histories. Born and raised in Malaysia, she was indelibly marked by teachers who strove to find a contemporary Asian expression out of the remnants of colonialism and dislocated traditions. She left Malaysia in 1985 for Paris, France, and later Canada, where she co-founded Battery Opera with David McIntosh. She has pursued a lifelong study and practice of Chinese martial arts, Qigong, and Taoism. Since 2010, she has been a student and practitioner of Fitzmaurice voice work and is currently a certified lead trainer of this work. So I think, you know, I'd love to just kind of preface this as we start with just around that idea of the ongoingness and the evolution of your practice over the decades. And I think what's lovely about that at this point in the podcast series is that we are talking to people who are very different stages of their careers. And so we have people who are just starting out, just up and coming. We also have people who are right in the thick of change, you know, like those kinds of things. And I think this is another example of revealing what artists go through (laughs) in committing to a life as an artist or just finding oneself in a life with art, (laughs) with with art making. Yeah. So I'd love for you to just maybe if you're interested to just use that as an opening, as you have said, if you have any reflections at this point or any insight you'd like to share on that idea, maybe of ongoingness and evolution of your career or of your practice, actually. Hmm. I guess as I, as I was listening to you, yeah, what came up for me is the realization that your body is this ongoing project that continually changes and shifts you know, aging, (laughs) getting older, growing up and then growing old. So it's constantly changing. And to be, I guess, to be a dancer, to to have said at some point that, you know, you are dedicating yourself to this practice of dancing is to basically dedicate yourself to this constant asking yourself what, what, what's going on with this body. Like, you know, dancing itself is, is a constant shifting action, right? You're, you're shifting yeah. your weight from one to another. Your, the moves move from one to another. So not, nothing is rigid and fixed. So you kind of, you extrapolate that. And as you learn new things about yourself, other things are unveiled and other questions come up. So... I yeah. guess that's that's kind of how I see it, you know. To not, nothing is fixed, and and dance is kind of like the quintessential. It's the form where you actually have to confront that nothing is fixed. I like the word quintessential. It was also making me think of all of the kind of cliches around dance and around what it is to be a dancer. That I would like us to, you know, talk. About maybe we'll get to later or maybe we'll just leave that in the you know hanging out in the air (laughs) but I want to say that 
dancing is a verb you know it's not it's not to be a dancer is not to be like a table or a chair or like or the bar mm. that's in the room or even the studio or even somebody who goes to a studio it's what the, it's what somebody does in the studio it's how somebody is with their body mm-hmm. and and then there's the other whole range of things within that but I think that's it's a reminder it's a a, a definite reminder that to dance as you age, to dance at any age, you choose in some ways how to dance. Or you, there is a, a layer at which you can choose how you dance or you can choose your relationship with dance. And I think it's sometimes very hard for dancers to remember that, <laughs> yes. that you can choose that. I think that's one thing. Again, we might get to that in terms of your mentoring and your role in the BC dance community, which is um, major. So already I'm trying to put 40 years of Soufé's influence into <laughs> one minute. So I will, um, I'll calm down on that front a little bit. But, but, but as you speak, I think, sorry, we, we can try and cram 40 years in, in this kind of, <laughs> you know, refracted yeah. way. In this, but, um, but as you were talking, yeah, what comes to mind is the realization or the discovery of all the different ways we dance, you know, Mm. Uh, and I'm remembering as an as a young person what I, I discovered dance uh, while I was uh, a, I guess 16 or 17 and I was part of a, a sort of children's theater experiment oh. uh, by a woman named Janet Pillay who's now uh, she's sort of known now in the region in Southeast Asia uh, for uh, her work in cultural mapping. But in the 80s, the, the beginning of an experiment of that led her into cultural mapping was working with young people uh, about making theatre together. And she was part of a, a group of artists who became my, my mentors and teachers who were, you know, asking, like, what it means to, to make theatre or make performance in this post-colonial Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so as a young person, I was part of this children's theatre experiment and my encounter with dance was watching my first dance teacher choreograph a scene with, you know, this uh, legendary bird, Jintayu. And I remember seeing that with another performer, with another uh, member of the group. And I think, uh, I want to do that. I want to... I want to be able to move my body through space, you know, and I want to learn how to do that. And so there's that call of dancing of just the, the, that kinesthetic, you know, shimmering that another body calls you into. And I think like that's certainly a desire um, in dancing, some, some kind of beacon into learning or experiencing more of my body. Mm-hmm. A sense of oh, there's a way of being in the world that is not just you know any idea of something, but it, it, it it's just a reminder of that that we are in our bodies, you know, to, to be mm-hmm. embodied, so to speak. Yeah. And then I think as we as you follow that desire, you or what I experienced was feeling the joy of dancing with another body, you know, when you learn a sequence in class and you're going across the floor together and then you learn that pleasure of, wow, like that joy of being with another and 
that's also and some people encounter dancing that way, you know, like from dancing mm-hmm. with another, and that's the invitation into the joy. So, and I guess that's like being in your body with another body, you know, like how are we bodies together. Yeah, and I think there's something about the with the joy in the learning of that, or in the being together with somebody so intimately in a way, because dance is a very intimate form. Our whole body is involved the the joy might not always be there <laughs> you know sometimes there is that kind of like sometimes the, the tension is there or the anxiety to dance with another in a certain way is is in the way of the joy or the joy is is deeper or it's or it's fleeting and there's and it's, there's something about that i think that is also very much present in your belief system and your philosophies and values that it's holistic and that this this sense of joy is something we we find in is is also a kind of transient maybe, but but our quest for it is enough yeah, for us to continue. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's not it's not automatic joy. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I think I think that's really I think that's really important because I think there is yeah, something yeah. I just want to come back to when you were saying it's not an idea necessarily it's actually an uh, experiential thing but I also feel like there's a lot of imagination involved in that and I think that's maybe where the you activate a sense of joy or you you choose to follow that line to -hmm. find it and there's an there's an imagination involved and it seems like from your experience in the children's theater that that they came together because you were watching this bird you know you wanted to be the bird you didn't want to be the person moving the bird in place <laughs> you know yes, it was yes. almost, there's something lovely about that I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that keeps that sense of body you know beyond the human form yeah well we are I mean our our bodies are designed you know I've become like yeah. really interested in neuroscience uh, lately and and of course our imaginations are a vital part of what it is to be human and to experience life, you know, as a human being, we process our sensations with with and through ideas. And, and in a process, I think sometimes we get like caught up in our ideas of ourselves and we forget, especially in, you know, in a world we live in mm-hmm. and a culture that, that for the most part we live in and our devices also push us into that direction that we increasingly live in our ideas and less in our bodies. And, and so, you know, often people say, oh, I just want to get out of my head and into my body. But as my voice teacher, Catherine Fitzmaurice says, it's, it's not really about getting out of your head, but can you bring your body to your head? Mm-hmm. You know, your head is part of your body. Yeah, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should just stay with the Fitzmaurice work for a second around that because voice and the use of voice in expression but also in as an embodied practice I think is something you can speak about as an kind of specialist expert and you know practitioner you have so much insight having come from a dance background performing background into voice work which I think is a really interesting journey and I find with your work that this your storytelling is very much I think from an embodied place, which means that the storytelling is not necessarily telling fictions or kind of narratives 
per se, but there is a sense of locating and situating the body inside a story. And even as a a listener and as a a viewer of your work, I felt that quite strongly. Would that be, has the Fitzmaurice voice work helped that? Would you say you found storytelling through the Fitzmaurice voice work or? I, I have a sense that storytelling for some weird reason has always been something that I do even before I discovered Fitzmaurice voice work. And mm. I, I think I was always working with my voice even before I uh, studied Fitzmaurice, Fitzmaurice voice work. Uh-huh. And it has something to do with uh, one of the things I always say is, uh, oh, I'm now a voice teacher and I'm a voice teacher because I actually hated my voice for like most of my life. Right. And of course, I, I don't think that's a very uncommon feeling like, as a te- as a voice teacher, I encounter loads of people who, when they are asked to, you know, I'll say, "Tell me the story of your voice," and and there's almost always a moment where someone says, "Oh, you know, I felt my voice was judged," and you know, so the, there's always like tension around my voice. So yeah, as, again, I'm I'm gonna do lots of Catherine Fitzmaurice quotes here, but you know, one of the things she says is, "Your voice is where the material and the immaterial intersect." Mm. And by that, I don't know what she meant by that, but you know, what I read from that is, on the one hand, it is a very concrete thing, you know, that you it's an action that comes out of breath and vibration in your vocal folds and how you hold your body, how you move your body, you know, all that affects your breath. So it's very based on the material. But because we use our voice to communicate with others and other humans, we use language to communicate with others and we've needed language to communicate with our caregivers when we were vulnerable. We It immediately brings into play our imagination, our relationship to power, to care, to love, to tenderness, to abandon, you know, all, all these things. Mm. So it, it's kind of broad. Absolutely. <laughs> and wonderful at the same time, right? Like, there's so much to discover. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing. And, and in some ways, I kind of feel like maybe my journey to becoming a dancer came from this fraughtness around my voice because I started in theatre and I remember as a young person it was just always a mystery to me when you know the few voice classes I encountered and the the great discomfort about being in my voice and so I chose to be silent. Mm. Mark Diamond I don't know if you remember. remember. Yeah yeah, Mark Diamond who who was uh, one of I guess he was the the theatre professor, yeah, wasn't he, at, at the, SFU? Yeah, yeah at, at SFU. And I think he began the, the, the theatre mm-hmm. area. He said once, dancers have chosen at some point to be silent. Mm. But eventually, your body is going to want to speak. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I love that. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, your body eventually will want to do all the things it's designed to do. And speaking, making sound is one of them, moving is one of them. And so as as I age too and reached 50 this year, I'm 
I'm thinking about my musical theater training and how I kind of left that, but how I always thought about dance as a kind of singing for mm. myself because it was always somewhat connected to this kind of silent voice in me that came from the musical theater side. And now I've, I'm discovering rhythm again in tap and all sorts of different dance styles, which is leading me back to the voice. And I, I mean, I talk a lot all the time. <laughs> so, you know, the, so this even even I think when I dance, I'm always kind of somewhat talking, even, even if the, the voice in my head is getting louder. So I really feel that. I really feel what you're talking about. And I think that I think there's something really empowering or potentially empowering in dancers thinking about they've chosen to be silent for a while. You know, I, th I just think that's a really healthy space to think about. Because it allows, I think, to the, one of the first words you said in this podcast, which was, as I'm listening to you. And I think, okay, so then dancers can have, we have the ability to listen to our bodies. Like, and if we can find that space, I think there's something really beautiful in that. So there's a reason for the silence, which is a very positive relationship to oneself. So I just think, I just wanted to mention that because I think there's a, we can forget sometimes that that level of embodiment is a kind of embodiment. There are so many, so many degrees of embodiment that there is a something our bodies can tell us in that space if we're open to listening to it. So yeah, and I, and I think that what you say uh, that that's a very beautiful retelling of the story of the silence of dancers because that that it's it's a choice, and sometimes we we need to be. Yeah, sometimes we just need to 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 make a space so that we can listen better. Yeah. Having said that, I, I and I think listening, as you say, is the key word here. You know, like in Taoism, you you can't move without stillness, and you can't be still without movement. You know, one leads to the other, and mm. I think similarly, to you need to listen in order to speak. And in order to speak, you also need to listen, you know, and, and that essentially is, is what communication, uh, you know, what I, I teach as a voice teacher. Mm. How, how do you listen to yourself, but you're also listening to the other. And then so as we talk to each other, we are co-listening, like co-talking. Mm -hmm. And that happens yeah. in dancing, you know, you're yeah. listening with your whole body. Mm -hmm. But I think it also is true that if we don't listen deeply enough to all that our bodies want and need, it is easy to be silenced by what we perceive. You know, the rooms that dance happens in, the tradition of how dance is transmitted. Uh, I think sometimes, I mean, that's where the oppression happens, you know, like certain bodies are silenced. So these kind of like systemic silencings or, or things that we don't really spend too much. Yeah, like, like our habits that are in our yes. bodies. Yes. And, and I think to be in the question of, oh, where does this habit come from? Mm -hmm. Learned, inherited, mm -hmm. or even just developed, negatively yeah. developed over time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I'm so, I, I guess it's part of my grappling is for me, I exist in this very acute awareness. You know, I come from Malaysia, which used to be a British colony. And of course, all of Southeast Asia, mm. 
has been so vital to the European colonial project. Mm, yeah. Spices and everything, and, and you know the, the, sh- the shipping routes that went through Southeast Asia. Okay. So I'm acutely aware that I work from a colonized body. That you know, I, I for most of my life, I I grew up thinking and believing that to be a better person, I had to be white. I had to speak English in a certain way, and English was the proper language to to speak. European languages were better than it you know these these were yeah ideas sitting around in my body and yeah and and every everything i do is trying to disentangle habits from like like what actually is me and what is learned what is useful what you know it's this constant spring cleaning of of one's (laughs) body (laughs) yeah absolutely and so can we talk a little bit about your experience of going to France then and then to Canada? Because that must have been, in terms of like speaking about cultural references or in listening to cultures or feeling like you are either silenced or able to express yourself, what was the draw to France particularly? And then, yeah, just just in some ways tracing aspects of that journey, however you feel in this conversation, you'd like to share that. <laughs> so I think when I um, graduated from high school in Malaysia, I had already been doing children's theater and and taking dance lessons. Mm-hmm. And the dance lessons I took from Marion de Cruz were traditional Malay folk oh. and classical dance, court dance, oh, wonderful. as well as uh, Graham technique. So oh, right. <laughs> she was already working with she had just recently come back from you know New York but before that she had studied Malay dance and she had done her master's uh, on the Malay dance from the east coast a tradition called Timang uh, Burung Joget Gamelan yeah and um, so she was already in this question of what's contemporary Asian expression and, you know, what is the relationship to the global contemporary? These are my my words, not names. So when I graduated uh, high school, my option at that time that I I was sort of like, which one, was either to go to Indonesia, to the institute there to study Indonesian dance Hmm. and to basically pursue a sort of Asian expression of dancing, or to go to Germany. And I had been studying German for about three years, you know, throughout high school, to, mm. because to go to Germany to study theater in a university. Mm. Germany, because, you know, education was free in Germany, and I thought, oh, I'll just have to go there and it's free. I just have to learn German. <laughs> and the idea of learning German came also from my mother, who had, you know, studied in Germany. And so she speaks German. Oh, wow. Excellent. So Germany or Indonesia, that that was like, you know, what I was balancing with. And then I saw this person, Larry Leong, perform. And Larry Leong was a Malaysian of Chinese descent like me, uh, who had been living in Paris for the last 15 years. And he came back one year to perform. And when I saw him perform, he brought a, a group of dancers with him. I had never seen anyone dance like that, you know. His body was just so fluid and 
It was grounded, but it was also watery. It was also airy. You know, it just moved through. It was so elemental. And mm. and also, it's hard for me to talk about this without having to also to talk about the, the socio-political environment that was in, you know, ethnically Chinese, uh, growing up in Malaysia, like one of the things I felt was a, a lot of shame about being Chinese. And I, I thought of, of being Chinese as, as a, a very uncultured thing. Anyway, long story short, very complex ideas about yeah. race and, and identity. Yeah. Just part of the legacy of being in Malaysia. And seeing Larry uh, dance, and I got this hint of, oh, that there's a there's a possibility because he also I, I somehow understood that he or I felt like he did martial arts or some kind and suddenly this avenue of oh that there's a way for me to dance without having to negate a part mm. of me mm. anyway you know I'm 18 I go up to Larry after a show or at a party mm-hmm. and I said I'm going to come to Paris and study with you <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And and, uh, and he says, well, sure, call me when you get there. And so I did. I basically dropped my plans to go to Germany or to Indonesia, and I went to Paris. And, and I spent two years basically taking dance classes with Larry and with other people. Wow. Already ready to move, though. You were already, you were, you were yeah. prepared to leave, go somewhere else. Yes. To go. And so that was absolutely, you were looking for the opening or the invitation yeah you made the invitation but <laughs> you, you created it but but at the same time you were that was exactly what you were going to do go somewhere else go somewhere yeah, else like, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and going somewhere else I have to say is also a, a part of the legacy of being an ethnic minority in Malaysia because you know you're you start to feel like that there's not your there's not a lot of options for you of future, so in some ways you're primed in all the mm-hmm. different ways to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Maybe eventually to come home, but you know, definitely. Yeah. So I'm not alone there, is what I'm saying. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, I, I felt the same thing. I felt like I couldn't really explore all I wanted to explore by staying in England mm-hmm. or even staying in, in Europe. I mean, yeah, granted, I only made it to North America, but the, there were logistics and conveniences in that my age that. But there was still, and and I still imagine that there will be other places I will mm-hmm. go and experience mm-hmm. and live. And travel is a huge thing for me, and always has been, you know, in the world. So I think there is a there is a draw to for that mm-hmm. for other experiences. Um, yeah, and maybe that's the thing. As I listen to you talk about it, it's like what parts are unknown for you, so that you can mm. feel your body into those unknown parts. And I'm just going to drop another quote here, which comes yes. from Zab Mabungu. She mm. once said, I once heard her say, um, Zab Mabungu is uh, based in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, part Congolese, part French. Uh, she teaches African dance. And I heard her say once that dance is to be with what you don't know about yourself mm. and what you don't know about the other. Mm. And I love this definition of dance, you know, that dance is what is a, is a way of being with what you don't know. It leads you into the unknown. Mm. 
I love that too. I took a workshop with her. It was all on Zoom though. <laughs> but still, I feel I feel there is a sense of, I felt like I was in a space of don't know slightly in that I was, there was an element coming back to what I was saying before about finding joy as a choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so I found myself in France. <laughs> yeah, I was also thinking of the material and immaterial in that way as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's already in how you described watching, do you say Larry Leong? Is that mm-hmm. the person's name? Yeah. And, and describing that, how you saw that performance. There was, there's definitely a kind of, in the words you used, I felt that same kind of relationship there. And so mm-hmm. then France and then Canada. So Yes, because, so then I went to France and and I think... I, you know, that, that was, I imagined a future where I was going to be in France, more or less. Yeah. But then I, I had to come back to Malaysia very soon after I went to France because I lost my passport. So I came back to Malaysia to get a new passport. And while I was waiting for my new passport, I met David McIntosh, who, you, you know, who I still work with to run mm-hmm. Battery Opera. And we fell in love. Eventually, you know, he became the father of my son. We're not together anymore, but we're yeah. friends. We, we run a company together. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in Canada. Oh. So some, somewhere in that shift, I, I met David, and then, you know, I continued to stay in France to, to study dance, but we were in different countries. And then that connection brought me eventually to Canada. Mm-hmm. I think David once told me how you actually met in Malaysia, I think I think I seem to remember at one point him telling me, but maybe we'll, I'll just save that one as a mystery for people out there. <laughs> we can check in on that later. But I seem to remember it being a very, uh, quite a wonderful story. Something about somebody rescuing somebody or saving somebody. Oh, yeah, that was a car accident. I met him after he had been run over by a car, so he was, uh, and you know, it was in like That's a hospital. Right. I wasn't making it up then. I wasn't making <laughs> no. it up. That was true. Okay, excellent. Um, okay, yeah, brilliant. You see, theatrical. <laughs> That's right. Drama. It was, me- it was meant to be. Battery Opera was meant to be. Yeah, it's, and so, you know, with the company, which I, I we won't spend much time on the company here because that's a mm-hmm. whole other, you know, kind mm-hmm. of podcast moment or for another time. But, you know, this whole thing about the interdisciplinariness, the collaborative, the co-directing, the working with dancers and actors, creating both dance performances that could also be seen as theater pieces. You know, there's always been this element of crossover, I think, an experiment of form that breaks conventions. And back then in the days of Spectator um, and those kinds of things, I wouldn't have necessarily talked about it from this kind of post-colonial perspective. I don't think any of us were, or not all of us were in dialogue about those things. It just wasn't, you know, so much of a thing 20 years ago and it should have been, but at the same time, all of those things that you were, they were all in the works (laughs) and have continued to be in the works ever since. I feel like there's something about you taking that, uh, and both of you have done this, um, you know, with the Battery Opera work, but your individual practitioner perspectives have launched careers from the Battery Opera work that have gone in quite, quite different directions, but you still sometimes work with the same people. And you, so you did build an ensemble in almost in the training or in the way in which you went about the work. And I think that's one of the things when we say how much of a trailblazer you are and how significant your impact has been on BC dance world, I think that's because of these opportunities you gave people to be involved in these projects and then 
they've related to those projects for their own work so much that they've continued to be able to do that themselves. I'd love to hear more about your individual practitioner perspective coming out of Battery Opera to where you are now. And I feel like the way in which you mentor people is is interesting. And maybe there's a bit of room here to talk about that, because I think you've really found that in Canada because of the way that Battery Opera was opened up the world for dancers or physical theater performers and all of these people to work together, but outside of the conventions of all of those forms. So does that give you something to mm-hmm. go on and talk about? Or? I think my all the years of working with David and still, you know, we, we still sort of work, yeah, together. Still work but, together. But but in some ways, it's like what Zab says, you know, like it, it's a way of being with what you don't know about yourself mm-hmm. and with mm-hmm. the other. And it, in some ways, one of the thing with it seemed with Battery Opera was we were very different people. We still are very different people with different aesthetics almost. And and somehow we fell in love and somehow we decided to work together. And it's it. I can't say it was ever a comfortable place, you know, working yeah. together. And working together is never comfortable anyway. It's just like living together is, isn't yeah. comfortable. Like uh-huh. being with another human being, as you, as we talked about earlier, you know, there's uh-huh. joy, but it's not automatic joy. There's a lot of discomfort to, to grapple for the joy, to negotiate for the joy. Uh-huh. So and I think all, all those things are things that I, I know, like having been born and, uh, raised in a very uh, multicultural country, you know, mm. a, a very culturally diverse uh, country like Malaysia. You know, mm. so many languages to, to grow up with many languages. So you you're already in that body of constant negotiating. Mm-hmm. But I think to to do that through a company, you know, you become very conscious about it because you have to write your mandate, you have to write your artistic statement. So you're already looking at what's happening and then you have to form it into your artistic mandate. Mm. So all to say, I think Battery Opera kind of... And I guess also because both David and I didn't grow up in institutions, so Mm. we, we didn't necessarily inherit automatic ways of being an institution and we had to like we had to like figure out what it was to to be Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. a company which helped many other people I think realize that being a company didn't mean one thing necessarily didn't mean right and that that makes me happy to hear you say that it helped other people (laughs) yeah and and every time you say that I feel a little shy like really really I'm sure but but at the same time (laughs) there is an element of you know for us particularly, you know, Restless Productions, you were on our board when we first started. Mm -hmm. And I remember you saying, like, artistic, your mandate and your mission statement, like, we would sometimes get them muddled. Like, we would sometimes, and and they're still muddled for me, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being a very institutional kid, you know, scheduled to the hilt my entire life. You know, there was something about, for me, that was a really hard thing. And we've since shifted with age and with experience and with COVID and all of those things, we've really shifted into a place that we feel is much more authentic for, for us. But it also means that we're just, we're just letting, we're giving it time. And it feels really, really healthy to be doing that right now. Really yeah. healthy to just give it time. And I think that's the one thing, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't quite understand time in the same way. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm with you. I feel like COVID has taught us all like collectively. Yeah. To, yes. To- think about 
time differently, space differently, and our bodies yeah. differently. And yeah. there's, there's a lot of opportunity right now to, yeah, to, to really learn how to move differently in, in the world. So I keep thinking with my research that, you know, all the, just, just in terms of language, you know, to take the time to do something, taking time is the wrong expression. Taking time to do something means I feel there's a sense of ownership of that time, which is mm. like taking it for that experience, but being with time or mm -hmm. having something unfold in time, those kinds of subtle shifts of language become completely unsubtle. <laughs> like the yeah. moment you make the shift in language, the moment you you realize that it's an entirely different experience you are talking about. And so I've just been mm -hmm. going through that as mm -hmm. well with my whole, mm -hmm. that is changing how I practice because absolutely back around to what we said before, like you arrive with certain preconceptions and learned notions mm -hmm. and learned things mm -hmm. and it's in the language you speak. It's like how you, uh, I mean, we talked about the difference between like embodiment and idea also. Mm. Like to take time is, as you say, you, you, there's a distance between you and time. Mm. It's, it's like you can take it. Mm -hmm. But to be in time is your body is in time already. And, and that, then it, it calls upon you to experience time differently. And mm. it's something like, you know, I give an exercise. Yeah. You, you feel, you feel. You feel your breath. You feel the breath come into your ribs, you know, and and lungs, and expand your ribcage, say, and then you you exhale and you feel your ribcage descend. And if you're like me, when I do that, I'm seeing my ribcage expand, and I'm yes, I feel it in some way, but I, I I'm mostly seeing my ribcage. But what if I brought my so-called intelligence into my ribcage and then I experience the breath coming in from there. Mm. You know, it's, it's that little shift in where you place your awareness rather than seeing your body as a part. Mm. Yeah. Feeling your body as something that you're in is, is a very different thing. Mm. And I guess that's, that's the space that dance or performance, you know, time-based things invite you into. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, it's kind of conceptual metaphor language in my research, you know, like Luckup mm -hmm. and Johnson talk a lot about conceptual metaphor and they've been very useful for me to just think about how just shifting that language and even walking into a space and thinking, walking into a social situation, because I'm also interested in kind of social cognition and those kinds of areas and mm -hmm. how you enter and and what you tell yourself in the moment that you enter the space as if that space belongs to others, you are walking into the space of others or you are those kinds of things I think are just really much more in my awareness and cognition now than, um, mm -hmm. and then before, which is, which is, I want, is inviting, but it's also forcing and imposing a change. <laughs> it's doing yeah, both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it is, there is a force still there. So yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. that's exciting. Yeah. The stories of, uh, our experience sometimes take precedence over the actual experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And as I get older, you know, I, I think that's the one thing I'm um, learning. It's like, oh, uh, that that's, a, that's an old story. And <laughs> I'm in a different experience now. Yeah. I, I want to just to, because this is making me think about 
this theater and dance thing. Mm, mm. And earlier you had mentioned rhythm. I too have become quite obsessed with rhythm. Huh. And I, I would say maybe when I was, uh, yeah, this question of, oh, what, you know, what's theater, what's dance, it's all the same thing. I think what dance invites us into in a, not that it doesn't happen in, in other forms, but dance is in some way makes us confront it is rhythm. Yes. How we work with it, what's the function of rhythm. And, and for me, rhythm is the thing that disrupts or enlivens an idea that could be rigid. Mm. You know, an idea is a container. And then when there's rhythm underneath it, then, then that container can start to vibrate. <laughs> and then when we're in, you know, this vibrating thing, then it's, it's a lot more alive than just the container. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it breathes. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, for example, the power of like good storytelling inevitably works with rhythm and phrasing and poetry you know works with rhythm mm. and phrasing and, and I think that like great great theater great playwriting always grapples with rhythm so I, I think it's not just you know dance does that dance brings your bones and your body into this play with rhythm but certainly rhythm exists when we use our voices, because breathing is is a a rhythmic thing, and and yeah, I'm, I'm just riffing. I'm just nerding on this kind of uh, yeah. This. Answer this question of you know different disciplines and how they intersect. And so my interest is in rhythm, the external rhythms that we might, like you say, set or like nail, <laughs> that mm-hmm. we have to nail it so that, you know, we're on rhythm all the time. Mm-hmm. But, but also the process of getting to that is really about being honest with yourself yes. as well. So one of my tap teachers says tap keeps you honest because the accents in tap dancing means that you, everybody hears the accent that you have just made, which may not be the one that you intended. (laughs) It's the same with the voice. I mean, it is the same with dance, but sometimes um, not everybody feels like they understand dance. And so they don't necessarily notice it that in the same way, like if you're not making sounds with your dance. But I would say it's the same. It it is the same in dance. Like if, if you are interested in honesty, if you're interested in that, and you don't have to be, you don't have to dance for that reason and from that place. Mm. But because it, I like that right now, that feels really good. It keeps me honest. And I just, I feel that's, that's quite lovely. Yeah. I was in a, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a workshop with Sheku. Uh, it was a house dance workshop. Oh yeah. Great. Sheku Heru. Anyway, I've never really done house dance. So, you know, it was all new to me. Mm. But and he teaches almost completely uh, with no words, like you know he he just does something and then you follow and uh, and of course the the rhythms get more complex and and you know you, you build it and and I remember the the second day just feeling like I had a, a lot of frustration because you know it felt like oh you're developing the rhythm you know a little faster than I can manage and and so you, you I felt the frustration and then. 
and then you feel the demons come up, you know, and you feel frustrated. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm not worthy. I suck. You know, all those things. But then miraculously, sometimes, you know, you find it. Mm. And what you find is, is really not that you look exactly like the awesome dancer next to you or the teacher, but you, you find the alignment in yourself and, mm. and, and you find the ease. And, and that moment feels like as much as, you know, you grapple with the demons thinking you suck, but when you find that those little spaces, it feels like you found God, like in your body. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, in this like struggle, you encounter like this range of your devils, but also mm-hmm. the divine in, in yourself. Mm-hmm. The sublime. It's, yeah, it's like <laughs> the whole experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and I feel like there's, it is kind of almost like giving yourself permission to be in these spaces, right? Just like you say, the, the, the don't know mm-hmm. and the seeking out experiences that put you in that place. Yeah. Not knowing. So just we'll briefly talk about some of your works that have, I think have come out of your individual practice, but are still cl- obviously collaborative. Dance Machine and Spiraling by the Sea, The Territory Between Us. And people can look up uh, these works on your website at lisufay.com mm-hmm. and find out more about them. There's lots of really interesting stuff on your website about these. And um, the Dance Center has uh, lots of information on these pieces um, over the years. And so I do encourage people to look at, at those. But I, th- I just wanted to mention the fact that there is what you're talking about, the the working with the collaborative element, not just with people, but also with landscape or territory or mask or bamboo sticks or something like there is something like very materially interdisciplinary about the work and I wondered if you would like to talk about that because I feel like that that's also what the collaboration is um, you know with the with the landscape with the with an object with with material would you like to say anything about that and maybe lead into your residency project at the dance mm-hmm. center as well around that well first of all you know as a martial artist I've always yes. worked with with things you know with with a spear with a with a sword and the way you're trained as a martial artist is is always to relate to space Mm. that you're activating space that the things that your body does is really just to activate the space around you uh, to be in partnership with the body around you or that you're with Mm. and so then a weapon is is just a way of reaching into that space and so you know practicing with a sword means I have to be aware of what my body is doing, but how the energy from my body, uh, you know, reaches into the tassel of the sword or into the point of the sword and beyond. So, the, you know, these become extensions of you. But I think around 2008, I maybe more intentionally started to explore. And I would say I didn't have this word then, but, you know, the, the kind of like a, an exploration of animism. Huh. I, I was interested in this question of, because I'd been studying martial arts and doing a lot of Qigong, this idea, you know, moving energy around me. And, and sometimes in Taoism, one talks about the alchemy that happens when you work with energy. And so I became interested in, oh, if I, I wonder if I shared this work with artists who didn't work with their bodies like, would that be some kind of alchemy where, you know, I'm mm. turning energy into matter and object somehow? Anyway, mm. 
so that led to there was a few years where I was working with setting up processes where I could be in this question of how do I turn energy into matter? <laughs> mm. So, for example, uh, I worked with this French uh, costume designer, Alexandre Berto, who had worked with me and Benoit Lachambre, you know, mm. when we collaborated on, on body scan. Mm, yes. And Alexandra, you know, works, you know, she's, she's a costume designer, but I invited her to basically do my practice with me, say mm. for a week or two weeks. And then she would respond by, you know, making objects. And then the process was I lived with those objects for a year to see what came up. What was my response to that? And my response to the objects was then to go into the studio and, you know, they, they were like knitted fabric things with things that belonged to me, kind of like mm. interwoven. Mm. And I went into the studio with them and with Justine Chambers mm. as a, a, an assistant and, and mm. kind of a, a collaborator in some way, someone to mm. be in conversation with. Yeah. And that was kind of how... The concept of dance machine came up. I, I think I, in that moment, I went, oh, I, I, I'd like to create an environment where my body is mm, connected to space through my costume, and that if I move, then the costume will move, the space will move, and then if the space moves, then the audience will move, and all I have to do is respond to the audience. Mm. I don't have to mm. make a dance, you know. I'm already yeah. in the... I talk about this as the the simplest dance. <laughs> and the simplest dance being a dance that just comes out of responding to the world around me where I don't have to make something up. Yeah. And I think I'm still always in that quest. How, what, how do I create an environment so that I'm just responding Bonding to the world around me. I, I can be present in the world and I can be present with myself and all the things I've learned and my questions. And, and the simplest dance is just me in partnership with the world. And so the dance machine was a, a kind of environment that emerged and got built where I felt this, how, how am I in response with the world could happen at many stages, you know, from the setting up of the installation in, in whatever space it was to the meeting of the human bodies, you know, between artists in that environment and then the audience coming into that environment. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to now, Touch Me, Hold Me, Let Me Go came up is part of what I call a long, slow dance that began mm -hmm. with me, a very similar energy object kind of thing, where I approached Bracken Hanus Colette. He's an artist from the Wikinuk and Kahus nations um, here on the West Coast. And I asked him if he would be interested in carving a mask for me after we had been in conversation together for some time. So we spent a year talking to one another, just talking as two artists, getting to know one another, sharing our, you know, stories of our relationship to 
our family history, but also our relationship to the land here, to belonging, to our practices. And then at the end of this year, he carved this mask. So, and, and then my job, my task on receiving this mask was just to submit to it. Just, okay, this is the mask and I'll just do whatever the mask tells me to do. Although, you know, when I did that, I thought I would just put on the mask and a mask dance, you know, I would make a mask dance. But so he made me the mask and, and it started this process where as I put on the mask and, and I brought it into a, another process that I was in at Dance Makers where I was yes. artist in residence. And I thought we would collectively make this, you know, this mask piece. But then the mask said no. Said no, I love this. I love, <laughs> yeah, I love this. Right. Like you listen to the mask and the mask is like saying no. And um and I talk about this you know, in this performance that I'm making or that's emerging. Right. The mask said no, like how do you hear the no? The no comes up in the body and this attunement to the no in one's body is important to me. Like how we listen to the no's. Because how you listen deeply to the no, how you express the no, what is your next action when you say no? Mm-hmm. I think it's as important, if not more important, than how you say yes to something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this relationship with the mask for me is a bit like me asking Bracken the carver to choreograph me. And something Bracken said that's really was really beautiful was he felt like carving this mask from, you know, a piece of red cedar. And he knows, you know, that this cedar came from a, a certain tree that fell in in the eighteen hundreds. So, you know, that there's already a history of this piece of wood that is known. He talked about the responsibility he felt in carving into this piece of block of cedar and how that that was sometimes overwhelming to him or you know he felt greatly this sense of responsibility to for this life force that was in this piece of wood that was part of a fallen tree in the forest and when he gave me the mask he was handing me the same responsibility yes yes absolutely so then suddenly responding to something, a responsibility, the two things together uh, yes. become a little more weighted, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, so responding, responsibility, and dance, in fact, as a responsibility that we have, also our voices as a responsibility we have to ourselves and to ourselves in the world, I think is mm-hmm. what I care about. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think as we bring this conversation to a close, unfortunately, I think there's also this element of coming back to what the ongoingness and evolution of a practice is. I mean, it's a perfect way of, I think, like helping, helping maybe explain a little bit about how choosing to be an artist in life or choosing to be, have a creative life is also choosing to respond to and to have a responsibility for this recognizing life force, as you said, you know, like there is an element of all of those things together. So that comes with the legacy of that life force, the enlivening, as you've mentioned, all of these things, the activating of it. Mm-hmm. And we certainly don't have to to be so-called professional artists to 
take on no. that responsibility. You know, this notion also of being an artist is is also a very culturally specific thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> in many cultures, the artist is the farmer, is the the mayor, is the you know, you're we're all like embracing, or, or the, there's always the invitation to embrace that responding to and responsibility. Yes, and the, you know, one of the things that Heather Bray, you know, was like pulling materials for us to talk about for the dance center, and one of the things is, you know, Sufe is so much more than a choreographer, and there's so and and like you say, like an artist is, we don't own these terms, you know, like like a, coming back to this dance as a verb and all of these things mm-hmm. we talked about in the beginning, all of these things are things we are doing, they're the ways we are responding and the ways we're choosing to be in the world with others, as you said in the beginning but there's also I just want to mention that there is a craft involved there is a a commitment to a practice through all of this and with the collaborators you work with and everybody there is a commitment to not just being creative and responding but also that responsibility is taken very seriously in the preparation for then being with other people in the world in terms of art making which starts very early you know the art making like you say is not necessarily now we're going to make a piece of art that an audience will watch or that we can rehearse it's about it's the way in which you approach something the way in which you converse with people during a process and the I I think that that's one difference for me is that making a distinction about that as an artist's life is like the things you choose to respond to and the crafting is already in your response it's almost like it's not a later stage you know it's already it's something that comes with paying attention to how you pay attention perhaps <laughs> I think I think there is that and and how you converse and how you how you do those things so I I love this idea that we are going to experience in June a part of your long slow dance that we get to be with you in that journey um thank you so much for talking with me mm, at this thank point you. that's been delightful Claire oh. it, I haven't talked to you for a long time so it's, it's been, been so long it's, it's been, been so long a I, huge I, pleasure yeah it's been a, I, yeah thank you so much for your time oh thank you it's see you in the delightful. flesh soon I hope yes okay. <laughs> yes excellent see you then okay. bye thank you so much for listening We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, as this will help other listeners find us and help us to grow our dance audience. We'll be back next month. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook at The Dance Centre, Twitter at Dance Centre, and Instagram at The Dance Centre BC. And if you'd like to support our work, please consider making a donation. Just go to our website at thedancecenter.ca where you'll find extensive information about our upcoming programs and events. The music for the Dance Centre podcast was composed by James B. Maxwell. Always a pleasure to connect with you through dance. Until next time, 